Thank you, ladies. Well, I'm going to begin with this greeting. Shalom Alehem. That's Hebrew for peace be to you. It's a well-wishing uh, that, and a, that uh, Jewish believers give to one another. Well, I'm excited to present this year's new series of women's Bible studies, The Heart of Conversation, Lessons from Messiah Jesus. And in case you haven't heard, I was in Israel from May 28th through June 8th of this year. And it wasn't an easy trek to get there, I might say. Uh, we travel 5,280 miles from Newark, New Jersey to Tel Aviv Ben-Gurion Airport in a 10-hour, 11, 10 and a half hour trip. And when we were in Newark, we were in an 11-hour layover before we got on the plane. We also had to fly from Duluth to Minneapolis to Newark, which took us between five and six hours. And when we arrived in Tel Aviv, we had a 33-mile trip on a bus to Jerusalem to land in the afternoon, dinner at night, get to bed, and be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. But the trip and the jet lag were well worth it. Because my experience in the Bible lands is probably the world's best Bible commentary. It's one thing to learn geography from an atlas, but it is another thing to experience the hills and the valleys and the seas and the rivers and the deserts. <laughs> and the manifestation of God's presence not only has a recorded history as we think of the word of God, but it also has a physical geography. So from north to south and east to west, we traveled. And Israel offered us not only biblical history, like nowhere else, where the Bible comes to life, and we saw stories exactly where they were made. Stories are like people. Both have homes. I'm a writing teacher, and when I assign students a personal narrative, which is a story of their life, a testimony of their life, uh, I tell them this. I said, setting is crucial to your story because who you are and how you think and what you do and how you communicate is so tied to the places which you have been. And the same is true of the Lord Jesus. My husband, Barry, our son, Greg, daughter-in-law, Stacy, friend, Faye, friend, Tracy, and 46 others traveled to Israel. And we walked the trails the Lord Jesus walked. We saw the scenery he looked upon, and we hiked the deserts he traveled. And we sat on the southern steps of the temple where he taught. If you notice, you can also see the Mount of Olives to the right. And that, of course, is a place where the feet of the Lord Jesus will stand when he returns. It's a trip that keeps on giving. <clears throat> and so we would like to give to you this year our experience in Israel through our photos and through our stories, not only stories of our own, but also stories from the Bible. So grab your Bible, if you will, and put on your walking shoes and your backpack. And don't forget a water bottle. 
as we climb and we hike to many places, from Jerusalem to the shores of this sparkling Mediterranean Sea, up to the Galilee and down through the Judean wilderness. And then we'll have a float in the Dead Sea. But I'm going to warn you, this trip is not for the faint-hearted. It's hot outside. Sometimes it's 108 degrees. And the sun never hides behind clouds. And you will walk, you will climb, and sometimes you'll stumble over rocky, stony paths. After a day of hiking in the Judean desert of the Qumran settlement, where the ancient Essenes wrote and they hid in caves the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. It was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of our time, and I was so excited about it. And I turned to Barry at the end of the day and I asked him, what was the most important, your favorite thing that you saw today? And he immediately responded, the bus after our hike. (laughs) On the final day of our tour, I was sitting on the stone steps where most Bible scholars believe the Lord Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And I visited with a lady from our tour, and I said to her, you know, just being in Jerusalem, the place of our Lord Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, does not make me feel any closer to God than if I'm sitting in my room reading my Bible or praying or doing the dishes, or driving a car. And she agreed with me. You do not have to go to Israel to feel close to God. The Lord Jesus is with you by his presence around you and his relational presence within you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes with you everywhere, whether it's in your home, or you're in Duluth, or you're on the Iron Range, or Minneapolis, or Ohio, or even Israel. Because we worship a person, the Lord Jesus Christ and not a place. And we can worship God anywhere. The Lord Jesus said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And only those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has the indwelling Holy Spirit where we can worship God acceptably. By God's providence, we were able to be in Israel on its 75th birthday. On May 13, 1948, People the world over awoke to what was for them just another day. But it was not just another day. In a small room in faraway British Mandate Palestine, Jewish statesman David Ben-Gurion rose to his feet before an assembly of Jewish dignitaries and declared, Israel, after 2,000 years of displacement, was again a sovereign nation in its own land. And a mere 11 minutes later, President Harry S. Truman led the United States in recognizing the rebirth of the state of Israel. And now, homeless wanderers who had been displaced for over 2,000 years could breathe a sigh of relief. The Jews, at long last, could begin to come home. Israel is a modern miracle of God. There is no other way to explain it to explain its rebirth and prosperity in the face of constant opposition. And getting to this point has not been easy for Israel, but the hand of God has been evident throughout their history, even before 1948. 
And God's love for the Jewish people is clearly demonstrated by his faithfulness to them. It's a story of amazing grace and love. And that's why Israel's story is so important to us in this age of grace, because God's grace never changes. The population of Israel is about 9 million, and almost 1 million live in Jerusalem. In the Lord Jesus' day, there were 75,000 living in Jerusalem. Israel is equal in size to the state of New Jersey. And Israel is ancient, but it's a constant process of rediscovery and, and renewal. New archaeological sites are being discovered almost daily and opened to the public. When we were there, the Pool of Siloam was being excavated. It was discovered, actually, in 2004, and the excavation has continued. And you've probably read in the news just three weeks ago that more discoveries have been found at the Pool of Siloam. As they were unearthing things, eight more steps they found were going into the pool that hadn't been seen for over 2,000 years. And as they're excavating, they're saying, oh my, the size of this pool it's going to be about 1.25 acres and the size of two large Olympic pools. This is just recently discovered. It was like for us having one foot in the past and one foot in the future. The Jewish people are returning home to Israel, and not necessarily in belief, but God is sending them there. And as you look at the silhouettes of the skyline of Jerusalem, cranes are just covering the skyline as one high-rise apartment after another is being constructed. And since 1948, over 4 million Jews have been gathered back to their homeland, and they're still coming. We saw them when we were in the airport at Tel Aviv. The Jews returning to their land to which they've been exiled is called Aliyah, which is a Hebrew word which means to go up or to ascend, the act of going up. So when Jewish people migrate to Israel, they say they are making Aliyah. This series on Israel and Messiah Jesus owes a great deal to many Bible scholars, teachers, pastors, and friends whose passion for the word of God has affected mine. But there are two in particular I like to note, and then the third is very special to me. I'd like to begin first with Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum. He's one of the foremost authorities in the nation of Israel, and he's a Messianic Jewish believer. He is founder and director of Ariel Ministries, an organization which prioritizes the evangelization of Jews in an effort to bring them to the view that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's a very popular speaker worldwide, and I've been fortunate to attend some of his lectures at Duluth Bible Church, and also I have many of his commentaries and books. And Dr. Fruchenbaum was in Israel on the closing days of our tour, and he did attend our closing night dinner. I would also like to recognize Dr. Randall Price, who's a theologian, archaeologist, and a research author of over 40 books. He's also founder and president of World of the Bible, which was our tour group in Israel. He has led 115 guided Israeli tours with an historical, cultural, and geographical context behind scripture and prophecy. 
After attending several of his presentations at Duluth Bible Church and having a personal conversation with Dr. Price, in 2019, I decided we decided to sign up for the tour. And then you know what happened. COVID. 2020 prevented us from going. 2021, it prevented us from going. In 2022, the borders were still shut in Israel, prevented us from going. And I thought, well, Father, maybe the next time I'll see you. See, Israel is in the Millennium Kingdom. But no, yet another plan. In the spring of this year, Israel opened up its borders and we could go. And I was so thankful that we did. Uh, his wife, Beverly, also came with him on the tour with us. And she shares Dr. Price's enthusiasm for archaeology and the world of the Bible. But I would especially like to recognize my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus means the world to me, and you could probably say the same thing. He is my friend. He is my counselor. He's my companion. He's my resting place. He becomes more precious throughout the passing years. And no matter where I go, no matter what I do, no matter where I look, if there's anything true and if there's anything good and if there's anything praiseworthy in my life, I can trace it back to the Lord Jesus and his great love for me, which he proved at Calvary. We love him because he first loved us. I'd like to read some verses from this chapter in 1 John chapter 4, so if you don't mind turning to that portion, and you can either turn to that or you can listen to me read. And I am reading verses... 7 through 11 of 1 John chapter 4, and it begins this way. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to take upon our sins. Thank you, Father, for that great love that was demonstrated. Thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit that lives inside each believer who teaches us and comforts us and helps us. And I just pray, Father, through the power of that Holy Spirit, I will be able to impart to the women the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also the message of Israel, who is so precious to you. So thank you, Father, now for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin our first lesson with a conversation of Messiah. And as I designed this series for this year, I not only wanted to share Israel with you and the various places of Israel, but I also wanted to share the Lord Jesus' conversations at those places. Because I think the Lord Jesus has much to show us how to connect with others in an age of incivility and isolation. Following last year's series on the power of our thoughts, I thought that this series would be a natural progression. Because we're now in a society that's dependent on texting, on meme sharing, on tweeting, Snapchats, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok trends. And as one young person shared, nobody talks anymore. They share TikToks 
but they don't talk. In July, uh, friends and I had a conversation on a pontoon boat, and as we were meandering around the lake, we were talking about conversation, actually. And we asked, does anyone actually converse with one another anymore? Not text, but face-to-face conversation. We said conversations have become digital and we hardly know how to talk. It seems as if we've lost the skill of conversation. So it led us to this question. How can we better connect with others through meaningful conversations? We also talked about how this disconnection has affected our young people. As a former college instructor and administrator, I can see and I saw the effects on our young people. Generation Z, which are uh, young adults ages 18 through 22, has been referred to as the loneliest generation. And the 2018 Harvard School of Education Health Study reports that 61% of young people feel serious loneliness, and nearly half of Americans report sometimes always feeling alone. So here's a scoop. Everyone wants a sense of belonging. Everyone wants to be seen, to be heard, to be acknowledged. Everyone. And so when I duck out of sight, when I see someone that I don't want to talk to or I stick earbuds into my ears, I may be protecting myself from a socially awkward moment, but I'm robbing someone else of being seen and of being noticed. This cartoon, I thought, depicts it so well. One friend is saying to another friend, according to my fitness tracker, I've taken 2,307 steps avoiding people. But here's the problem. We are all creatures of habit. It is far too easy to stay in the familiar ruts we dig for ourselves. So according to the word of God, I really believe we can all become better at conversations. No matter how young or old we may be, no matter how smart we are, no matter how introverted or extroverted we feel. Conversations matter to God. And the Lord Jesus gives us a way and shows us a way to communicate and share his love with others. And I believe that our conversations can quell the epidemic of loneliness felt not only by teenagers, but also by older people as well, and then all the other people in between. So let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Mark 1.1 takes us to that beginning in the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. What was this good news? The good news was that the Messiah, Yeshua in the Hebrew, the hoped one for Israel, the anointed one, the redeemer of Israel, the king whom God will provide, Israel has arrived. Mark starts the story of Jesus a long way back in verse 1-1. It did not begin with Jesus' birth. It did not even begin with John the baptizer in the wilderness. It began with the prophets long ago. That is to say, it began 
long, long ago in the mind of God. Messiah Jesus is the only person in history whose lineage, birth, character, teaching, career, reception, rejection, death, burial, resurrection were recorded in over 300 prophecies 500 years before his birth. His childhood, his life, his ministry, where he lived, where he came from, where he went, his personality, his miracles, his betrayal, all from the pages of the Old Testament. And upon completion of Malachi's prophecy, which is the final book of the Old Testament, there was no written or spoken word from God until John the Baptist broke onto the scene and broke that silence 430 years later, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was the voice in the Judean wilderness, appointed by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. The kingdom is now offered in the person of the king whom John is the forerunner. And by calling the nations to repentance or change of mind, John prepared the way for the Messiah so the people would be ready to meet him and to trust him. Well, the Jewish audience of that day would automatically have understood John to be speaking of the messianic kingdom, described in great detail by the prophets in the Old Testament. They knew that this kingdom would be earthy and messianic, not some nebulous spiritual kingdom of God's rule in one's heart. John was a man who lived his message, not only by his words, but also his whole life was a protest against contemporary life. There was the place that he lived, John the baptizer lived in the wilderness between the center of Judea and the Dead Sea. We've been there. (laughs) And it is one of the most terrible deserts in the world. It's a limestone desert. It looks warped and twisted. It shimmers in the haze of the heat, and the rock is hot and blistering. And it sounds hollow to the feet when you're stepping on it, as if there's a vast furnace underneath it. John was no city dweller, that's for sure. And there was the garments that John wore. He wore garments woven of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. So did Elijah. To look at this man was to be reminded not only of, not of orators of the day, but of the prophets of old who lived in great simplicity and avoided soft luxuries. And the food John ate The Bible tells us that he ate locusts and wild honey. Well, people have asked us about the food that we ate when we were in Israel. We did not eat locusts, I'll tell you that. But we did eat Peter's fish and fruit and hummus. Peter's fish is tilapia, or white fish, prepared in a spicy tomato sauce. We enjoyed figs, apricots, dates, melons, mangoes, and bowls and bowls of freshly made hummus and bowls and bowls of a variety of olives at every meal, even breakfast. And bread. Bread is an integral part of the Israeli diet, and not a meal goes by without it. I enjoyed biting into the shiny golden braided challah bread 
It has a crumbly crust and a fluffy inside, and I'll tell you, it's so good you want to go back for seconds. And I did not count carbs in Israel. <laughs> I figured, hey, I'm hiking three to four miles a day. That should cover it. And the Israeli salad. It's mixed with cucumbers and tomatoes, finely diced. It's served with fresh parsley, olive oil, lemon, and feta cheese. And falafel. It's typical of the Middle East. It's there are small, deep-fried balls of chickpea mixed with garlic and parsley and other herbs and spices. And they can be eaten alone or they can be stuffed in a pita bread with salad and the always famous hummus. And I must share the desserts. Too many to mention, but I'll share a few with you. Baklava. It's rich, sweet pastry made of layers filled with nuts and soaked with a thick sugar syrup and honey. And halva. It's made with various kinds of nuts and sugar. It's crumbly and it's dry. And we would take it with us on our journeys because it would give us the energy that we needed to stick with it throughout the day. And if you like coffee, you would love Israeli coffee. It's strong, it's black, and it's Turkish coffee, if you will. And coffee is extremely valued in Israel. Most Israelis drink three to four cups a day. And you won't find Starbucks in Israel. They pulled out in 2003, after only two years, because Israel is the only country in the world where coffee is already so good that Starbucks went bankrupt trying to break into the local market. The Israelis did not like the American filtered coffee. And my husband, who dislikes most vegetables and all things green, did not particularly care for the Mediterranean cuisine. But he did eat lamb brains to be adventurous. And when I shared this story with uh, my Bible school students, one young boy raises his hand. He goes, well, Mrs. Halland, now you won't become a zombie. <laughs> I said, thank you for that. <laughs> well, back to the Jordan River. John met Jesus face to face at the river where John was baptizing people. And John baptized those who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And as, Jesus, as John saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a magnificent title. The Lamb of God. It sums up the love, the sacrifice, the suffering of our Savior. For God is a God who loves. God is a Redeemer who saves. And God promised to Israel that he would bring a Messiah who would not only lead his people into righteousness, but would die in atoning sacrifice for their sins. And not for their sins only, but for sins of the entire world. So God chose Israel to be the channel through which the Messiah would come. For salvation is of the Jews, the Lord Jesus said. And our Savior was a Jew. It's not just the event, but the place of Jesus' baptism, the Jordan River. This is where Joshua transitioned into his role as Israel's leader after Moses. And this is where Israel walked through into the promised land. And this is where Jesus transitioned from his private life to his public ministry. 
And at Jesus' baptism, three things happened. First, it was a moment of identification. Jesus identified with John's message. And secondly, it was a moment of approval. God's voice. It was the first time since the angels sang at Jesus' birth that heaven commented directly on the Lord Jesus. And the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And thirdly, it was a time of equipment. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit anointed the Savior for service. Messiah means the anointed one. And the Holy Spirit anointed him here. And he was about 30 years old when these things happened. Here's a photo of the Jordan River that we took. It's one of the most famous rivers in the world. It's the river of life for the people of Israel. It provides one-third to one-half of all the water for the many fertile valleys north and south of the Sea of Galilee. And in the past, and even now, the Israelis are totally dependent on this river. And the, the water, ladies, is very fresh. And, you, and the sun sparkles on the water, just like diamonds glistening. And you can hear birds sing in the background. And there's an abundance of plant life and trees. And it's just such a quiet and serene place. And when we came there, I felt like we needed to whisper because nobody was speaking loudly. It's not a very wide river. It's only 50 to 75 feet wide, but it's a very long river. It's 200 miles long. And it runs from the north of Israel, from Mount Hermon, at 1,500 feet above sea level, all the way down to the Dead Sea at 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the earth, by the way. And the water for the river comes from natural springs and from melting snow in the mountain. The Jordan River is mentioned over 180 times in the Bible. You know some of the stories, don't you? Nahum the leper was healed here, and Elisha made the head of an axe float here, and John the baptizer baptized here. And Jesus, of course, was baptized here as well. And our son Greg was baptized in the Jordan River on our tour. Greg was able to share his testimony of God's amazing grace of his salvation, and also God's amazing grace in his life. There were many who sat to listen. Greg shared Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He went on to say, Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Baptism cannot save you. Church rituals cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ can save you and his finished work on the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A believer's baptism is an identification of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he arose again the third day according to the scripture. And when a believer gets baptized, that believer is identifying with that work. If you look very carefully at this picture, notice the fourth person in line there. Can you see that gentleman? He has a blue shirt peeking out from that white robe that he's wearing. This man is a Messianic Jewish believer. 
We came to know him very well on our tour, and he became a very dear friend of ours. And although most of the nation of Israel rejects the Messiah, God will gain a remnant from Israel, even in this church age, but a small one. In fact, less than 1% of the Jewish people worldwide today believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. After Jesus' baptism, he begins a very active ministry of proclaiming himself as the Messiah King and offers a messianic kingdom. Jesus would now travel from city to city, synagogue to synagogue, and he quickly became known throughout all the regions of Galilee. And he met all kinds of people. In fact, as you trace his conversations through the Gospels, he had 40 different conversations with various individuals. From his circle of disciples to, to women, to people with physical and emotional needs, to Roman officials, to Pharisees. He dined with the rich, had pity on those who lived in sin, helped the poor and the needy, and his heart went out to the multitudes. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he was a great teacher. So people came by the thousands to listen to him. Multitudes marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. The majority of his conversations took place in the workplace uh, with fishermen, a tax collector, a Samaritan woman. Many conversations took place in homes, but few in religious settings. And Jesus talked with people about spiritual issues where they were most familiar and time and time again, the Lord Jesus sought out those who were lonely and who thought they had nothing to give. Whether it was a woman who was normally afraid to go out in public, or a tax collector who nobody wanted to sit by, or a prostitute who went to a party she should never have been at, repeatedly the Lord Jesus said, I'll talk to you. Research says that even a cell phone on a table affects conversation. How many times have we done that? You know, brought a cell phone and we're going out to dinner with somebody or we're having conversation with somebody in our home and there sits our cell phone. They say the mere presence of a cell phone creates distractions in both conversation partners. Well, the Lord Jesus did not have a cell phone. But whenever he talked to somebody, he had his or her full attention. And because he was so attentive to what they were saying, he could teach them a truth about himself and about God. And he knew what they were receptive to. He knew the best way to reach people is not to shame them, not to judge them, but to love them, to respect them, and to enjoy them. If I would ask you, what are the two most important and relevant conversations that you can think of the Lord Jesus had with an individual, what two people come to your mind? The two most well-known conversations that you can think of. Who are you thinking about when I ask that question? Did Nicodemus come to mind? Did the woman at the well, yeah, the Samaritan woman come to mind? We're going to listen in on those two conversations and see what the Lord Jesus has to show us about having conversations. One of the conversations takes place at night, and another conversation takes place at noon. One conversation takes place with a man, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and another takes place with a woman, a Samaritan woman, 
from a despised Samaritan race. Let's begin with the conversation at night. In John 3, verses 1 through 21, and the setting is Jerusalem at night. Now, the conversation with Nicodemus is interesting. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night to have a conversation? And quite often when you read about Nicodemus in other portions of Scripture, he's identified in this way, the one who came to Jesus by night. Hmm. Well, I think he came to Messiah Jesus by night so that somewhere in the darkness he might find the light. And until there is faith in Jesus Christ, the human heart is in darkness. And the Lord Jesus is the light of the world's darkness. He did not come to condemn or show even petty disdain toward any human being. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. He's going to save Nicodemus, as we're going to see, just as he saved us. So Jesus was quite busy during the day. This was Passover, and Jerusalem was filled with people. Oh, maybe 150,000 or more were there. So there were crowds, and I know the Lord Jesus was probably surrounded by crowds. And maybe Nicodemus thought, well, there's no way I can have a conversation with him a day. Just look at all the people there. Or maybe he came to Jesus by night with an element of secrecy, if not fear. But Messiah Jesus always left room in his schedule for interruptions. I noticed that about him. No matter how busy he was, he was always ready to talk to someone. And he met people on their own turf, and he was interested in establishing common ground with them. So you can turn to John 3, and we're following along the conversation as I'm going to also put it on the PowerPoint. And this conversation took place at night, and so I want to show you Jerusalem at night. This is modern Jerusalem at night. This is a picture, a photo that we took from the terrace of our hotel, which was called the Dan Jerusalem Hotel. And if you look very carefully in the night sky, do you see some lights up there in the night sky? Those are satellites in the sky, functioning to protect Israel's infrastructure and citizens in what is called the Iron Dome, sometimes referred to as David's sling. People have asked this, did you feel safe in Israel? And the answer is immediately, yes. Whether it was in the Iron Dome that was above us with the jets flying over or satellites above, or the soldiers of the Israel defense forces at many corners of Jerusalem and other places, usually with machine guns strapped around them. So yes, we felt very safe in Israel. Here's a day photo of Jerusalem. This is taken from the Mount of Olives. It's the best place to stand to get a bird's eye view of Jerusalem. And perched on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city, all of Jerusalem is visible. And as we stood there, looking down to our right, we saw the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the city of David and the old city. We saw the Temple Mount and the glistening dome of the rock which is then separated, the Mount of Olives, by the Kidron Valley, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And the psalmist described Jerusalem in this way. It's beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And I thought, what a fitting description. When I saw Jerusalem for the first time, it took my breath away. It's a steep ascent as you're going up to Jerusalem. One always goes up. You cannot approach the city any direction without an ascent. 
The city stands at the highest point of Israel's backbone at 2,575 feet. It's surrounded by seven mountains, and it runs north and south between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. And as we ascended the highway to get to Jerusalem the first time, and we're on this tour bus, we sang the song, The Holy City, which pilgrims on tour buses sing the first sight of Jerusalem. And maybe you know some of the words from that song. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to your king. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities on earth. This is a place where Melchizedek met Abraham. This is a place where Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. And this is a place where Solomon met the queen of Sheba. Jerusalem is the center of Israel and the center of the whole earth, just like your heart is the center of your body. Ezekiel writes, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries around her. Dr. Randall Price wrote, Jerusalem is the city at the center. It is the center of mankind's hopes and God's purposes. God loves it. Satan hates it. Jesus wept over it. The Holy Spirit descended in it. The nations are drawn to it, and Christ will return and reign in it. Indeed, the destiny of the world is tied to the future of Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, Jerusalem is now set to become God's stage for the final drama. Jerusalem is the only city in the world where God has chosen to place his name for its role in the history of Israel, in the life of the Lord Jesus, and the events of his return. If you notice carefully, you can see the shimmering, pale, golden limestone buildings called Jerusalem stone. It's found in the Jerusalem area and also in the Judean hills in Israel. This stone is used all over Jerusalem, and it's what gives that city its just magnificent, timeless, beautiful look. And the stone has been used in buildings since biblical times, the most famous structure of Jerusalem, with Jerusalem stone originally standing, is the western wall of the temple, sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall. And notice there in the front of the photo, do you see those white-washed tombstones? Those are the white-washed tombstones the Lord Jesus referred to when he spoke to the Pharisees. It's the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. It's 3,000 years old. It has 150,000 graves on the mountain slope. And it has been in use since King David's time. And prominent biblical figures, statesmen, religious leaders are buried here. And they're buried with their feet facing the temple. So they can rise up and walk straight ahead to the temple as they hoped for the coming of the Messiah. So Nicodemus came to Jesus at night from what he had heard and what he had seen during the Passover. The Passover where Jews made pilgrimages to the temple during this time for the annual celebration of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. And Nicodemus was probably the most learned Jewish teacher in all of Israel. He was head of one of the rabbinic academies in Jerusalem. 
So he met with Jesus. He wanted to hear him out. And I think he had a pretty good idea of the way the conversation should go. He begins this way. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one is able to do these miracles. You do, unless God is with him. So Nicodemus addresses the Lord Jesus as rabbi, teacher. He's very respectful of him, even though Nicodemus was the older of the two by at least 40 years. This conversation was the first real conversation between the Messiah and a leading member of the Pharisees. They believed that if you're born a Jew, you automatically inherit the kingdom of God. You have that right. Why? We're children of Abraham, which is sufficient for us to inherit the kingdom. Or so they thought. By the time of Jesus, there were over 6,000 Pharisees in the land, and they were looking for a Messiah who would follow all the new facets of the law. 4,187 of them called the Mishnah. And their Messiah would make new ones. The Messiah must be a Pharisee, they thought. He would be in submission to the laws of Mishnah. Anyone who was not born a Pharisee under Mishnah authority could not possibly be the Messiah. This is what Nicodemus brought to the conversation. But as we follow the conversation, we're going to notice how Jesus invested in Nicodemus, how patient he was with Nicodemus, how interested he was in the outcome of Nicodemus' life. And he expressed concern about Nicodemus. And he took time and energy to visit with him and to listen to what Nicodemus had to say because he cared what happened to Nicodemus. Oh, not just his physical life, but his eternal life. So he listened to Nicodemus at first to encourage him and support him. And he expressed empathy about what Nicodemus was struggling with. I believe that Nicodemus felt the warmth of the Lord Jesus throughout the conversation. And you will watch that as the conversation proceeds, it comes to the place where all of a sudden Nicodemus stops talking and he starts listening to what Jesus has to say. So Nicodemus can open up to the Lord Jesus and Jesus talked to him about eternal life, the kind of life that God gives. And Jesus expressed Complete certainty. In verse 3, you can see that the Lord Jesus said, I can assure you of this truth. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' authority to speak came from knowing God personally. Well, this was not the comment that Nicodemus had expected to hear. So Nicodemus asked questions. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, that's a ridiculous question, is it not? <laughs> but the Lord Jesus did not treat it that way. The Lord Jesus did not laugh at Nicodemus. He did not shame him. He did not say, why are you asking such a ridiculous question? No. The Lord Jesus was very patient with him. And the Lord Jesus says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven, the Lord Jesus says, I know the secrets of heaven. And I know the God, the Father, and I'm bringing the secrets of heaven to earth. What he said to others was literally God's truth. 
And then he gave a story that Nicodemus would know. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, Nicodemus knew that story as Moses raised a bronze snake on a pole for a cure of punishment of disobedience. The people looked and they lived. Their thoughts were turned to God. And by that power of God in whom they trusted, they were healed. And the Lord Jesus says, as Moses lifted up that serpent, even so I must be lifted up. Nicodemus will see that. The Lord Jesus will be lifted up on a cross. So people can turn their thoughts to him and believe, and they will be spiritually healed and find eternal life. Because eternal life is a present, permanent possession. So he's sharing with Nicodemus, the purpose of my coming is not to become another religious leader or teacher, condemning those who failed to live according to the Pharisaic code of conduct. My coming to earth, Nicodemus, is summarized in 25 memorable words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's saying, Nicodemus, it is with God that salvation started. It was with God who sent his son, and he sent his son because he loved the whole world. He loved you, Nicodemus. Only God has a heart so big to love the whole world. He loved the unlovable and the unlovely. He loved the lonely who have no one else to love them. He loved the person who never thinks of God or the person who spurns God's love or the one who rests in it. All are included in God's love but that God provided salvation for all by itself will not save anyone. That's why we have the second half of that statement. It's that whosoever believes on him should not perish and have eternal life. And until Nicodemus came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he would not have everlasting life. And Nicodemus would know what that term Son of God meant. It meant the Messiah, the Chosen One. As Jesus said, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, God sent me in love. He sent Jesus for our salvation, but that which was sent in love has become a condemnation. It is not God who has condemned the person. God only loves the person, but the one who does not believe in the Son of God and Jesus' work on the cross to die for our sins condemns himself. He who is sent in love has become to him a judgment. So what matters is one's reaction to Christ. It's belief or unbelief. Well, for Nicodemus, this was not something he could accept right away. And it's a rare occasion when a Jewish person accepts the gospel at the first hearing. When I lived in Minneapolis, I worked for a Jewish company. In fact, I was the only Gentile in the Jewish organization. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. Jewish people undergo a tremendous struggle, a spiritual, a religious, a theological, an ethnic and mental struggle to accept Jesus as a Messiah, as their personal Savior. And Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum wrote about this. One night, after we had had dinner at a restaurant on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, 
I noticed Dr. Price speaking with a Jewish woman who owned the restaurant. And the woman was speaking just very, uh, very verbally, and she, her facial expressions told me so much. And she was so animated, and she was crying loudly. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to. I want to believe he's the Messiah. But I just can't. I can't. How can Messiah be born out of wedlock? Well, this was not the first time that Dr. Price had talked to this woman about the Lord Jesus. And I know it will not be the last. And that's why we must not only pray for Israel, but pray for the Jewish people, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray for that woman whose face I will never forget. For Satan has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Did you notice in the conversation that the Lord Jesus Christ did not press for closure with Nicodemus or have him make a decision now? The Lord Jesus seldom did. Instead, he understood it takes time for Scripture to simmer and for the Holy Spirit to work, for people to own the Scriptures before they can act on them. For Nicodemus, the struggle began with this conversation with Jesus at night. And it continued with him for three years. Nicodemus appears in John's gospel on two successive occasions. In John 7, he was not yet a believer, but he was willing to defend the Messiah's right to be heard before being condemned. He said, is it right to condemn a man without hearing him first to learn what he is doing? And in John 19, Nicodemus openly identified himself as a believer when he took care of the Messiah's burial. Both Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus took care of the burial ceremony. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes used for royal burial. This was a tremendously courageous act on the part of Nicodemus. So what happened to Nicodemus after he publicly identified with Messiah Jesus? Because of his prominence in Jewish society, he was mentioned in rabbinic writings. And as a rabbi, he did not make a living as a rabbi. All rabbis had to have a trade. And Nicodemus' trade was a well digger. And he became very wealthy. Water is a precious commodity in Israel. And so if you're a well digger, you're going to make a lot of money. And he was probably one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. But when he became a believer in Jesus Christ, in Messiah Jesus, he was reduced to poverty. No one would contract with him. And he died a pauper. The rabbis recorded this story mainly to warn other Jews against believing in Jesus. So, yes, Nicodemus died physically poor, but spiritually rich. And we have his story recorded in the scriptures. What is so special about Nicodemus coming to faith in the Lord Jesus? The answer is the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life with God in the place he has prepared for those who trust in him. Without Christ, there is no other way. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The price for each person's sins has been paid. And salvation is just one decision away, just like it was for Nicodemus. And what about you? Have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? If so, you have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And now the Lord Jesus is going to offer another person eternal life. And this time, it's a woman. And the conversation takes place at noon. And it's the longest conversation, one-on-one conversation, recorded in the Gospels. Now, the Guinness World Record for the longest conversation is 54 hours and 4 minutes. (laughs) And the record was set in a shopping mall as part of a sponsored event in 2017. And can you imagine that wandering conversation? (laughs) But this conversation with the woman at the well is no wandering conversation. It takes place at Jacob's Well in Samaria by the city of Sychar, which is about a half a mile away. And the conversation begins with a simple request for water. And it turns into a lengthy conversation ranging over a wide array of topics from water's rights to the woman's history of scarred relationships to the place to worship God to eternal life and the Messiah. And remember how I said setting is so important to the story? Here we have it again. From this story, it signals how important it is because this geographical area of Samaria is mentioned many times in the Bible. Uh, Jacob stopped here when he returned to the promised land. Joshua gathered all Israel here to recite the blessings and cursings of the covenant. And here will be the most memorable conversation of the Messiah. So as John 4 begins... The Lord Jesus is going to show us the art of conversational turn-taking. He's going to let the woman speak, and then he's going to speak. The woman's going to speak, and he's going to speak. It's back and forth, questions and answers, sharing of stories, thinking of conversation as a warm connection. So the Lord Jesus needed to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. But he could have gone different routes, but he chose the longest route. He had to walk 30 miles to have this conversation. Wow, 30 miles through Samaria. We did not stop at Jacob's well, but we drove through Samaria, and it's currently under the administration of the Palestinian Authority. And I know that conflict exists in this area between Israelis and the Palestinians. Differences of religion and nationality and culture and land and language play a very major role. And in Jesus' day, there was tension there too between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was very painful and very tenacious. But the Samaritan woman had a story, but she's hesitant to share the story. She wants to keep it to herself. She hopes nobody really finds out. But the Lord Jesus knows her story already. She's been in a succession of many divorces. She's been known by by five husbands. She's now in a common-law marriage. And as a result, her fellow citizens despise her. She's lonely. And Jesus knew that. He knew her story. You can't hate someone whose story you know. We can take courage from the fact that people are longing to be in conversation again. 
We are hungry for a chance to talk. People want to tell their story and are willing to listen to yours. People want to talk about their concerns and struggles. Too many of us feel isolated, strange, or invisible. Conversation helps end that. So when Jesus and the disciples came to the fork in the road, Jesus sat down to rest. He was very tired from that journey. And as he sat there, the Samaritan woman came to the well in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. About 2,000 years earlier, Jacob had dug this well to a depth of more than 100 feet to ensure that the well would never run dry. And if you would go to that well today, you could draw water from that well and you could drink water from that well because it's cool, chilled water for drinking. Isn't that something? But notice how the Lord Jesus engages in a a meaningful conversation and he allows the woman to talk about herself. Jesus was sitting by the well while the disciples went to the nearby town to buy food. And he says to the woman, Give me a drink. Well, this shocks the woman when he speaks to her and requests a drink of water. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a Samaritan woman? The woman was surprised by Jesus' request for water without immediate offer to pay for it because that was contrary to Jewish practices of that day. The Jews were not to accept anything from a Samaritan. So Jesus responded to her question with an answer to pique her curiosity and to create in her a thirst for eternal life. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Well, right away, she knew what he meant when he used living water. The people of the desert understood this term very, very well. But what he was saying is there's a spiritual thirst only Jesus Christ can satisfy. But living water, that was precious to the people of the desert. Water was their life. You don't drink out of stale water, stagnant water that you find in cisterns because it's dangerous. And I cannot tell you how many cisterns we saw in Israel. They were all over the place. And cisterns are storage places for water. So when I hear of the term living water, I cannot help but think of our two-hour stop at Angeti on our way through the Judean wilderness down to the Dead Sea. Angeti paints a picture of living water in the desert, but before you get to the living water in the oasis of Angeti, you have to first walk through a desert area. And here we see the caves of Angeti. It was a steep climb for us to get there, but there they are, ladies. Those are those ancient caves where young David hid from enemy King Saul when he cried out to God in dozens of his psalms. So when you look at this, you can think of those words he used of stronghold and hiding places and refuge and rock, and those words really come alive here. The highest location of Angeti is where an amazing and beautiful waterfall exists. This is referred to as David's waterfall. There's a smaller waterfall at the base, Uh, But the sheer beauty of this waterfall is astonishing and it's totally worth the hot rocky climb to get there, or so I was told. It's very dangerous to get to this waterfall. Many people have slipped or fallen. And so my husband Barry and I decided that we were not going to climb up there to see it, but our children did, and Greg took this photograph. And you can see it's a beautiful spring of fresh water gushing out of limestone, tumbling down the cliffs on its way to the Dead Sea.
It's a very popular place in Israel to this day. It's a national park. Over a half a million people from Israel come here to get refreshed. So when Jesus said, indeed the water I give you will spring up within you, I'm welling up to eternal life, he was using imagery she would know. So right away she says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And this was just the opening the Lord Jesus needed to reach her soul and talk about her life. So Jesus tells her to go get your husband and, and return if you want to know more about this living water. I have no husband. This was the shortest statement she made in the entire conversation. Well, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. Before anyone really understands the need for a savior, they must see themselves as God sees them, a sinner in need of salvation by God's grace. We never see ourselves clearly unless we see ourselves through the eyes of the Lord Jesus. He often drives us to God by revealing us to ourselves. The Lord Jesus' complete knowledge of her life astonished her. Everything she was trying to conceal from him, he already knew. And she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Well, this was a major step for her. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. You see what she's doing here in the conversation? She's trying to get Jesus to debate religion and move the conversation away from herself and her relationships and lifestyle choices. So the Lord Jesus says, well, the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's saying it's not where you worship, but how you worship God. You need not go anywhere special to find God. True worship, he says, finds God in every place. God is not confined to places or things. We can worship God anywhere in the power of his spirit. And then she says to him this, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus gives her a powerful revelation that the Gospels report him doing only twice. He verbally identifies himself as the Messiah, and he says, I who speak to you am he. The clearest statement made by the Lord Jesus that he is the Messiah is spoken to an adulterous woman from the despised Samaritan race. No large crowd, no public places, no beautiful buildings, simply a personal conversation. And immediately, the woman put her faith in Messiah Jesus. And she wanted to share her discovery of the Messiah with others. Hasn't that been true for you when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Didn't you want to go out and tell the world? She did. She puts down her water pot. She books it half a mile to Sychar, and she wants to spread the news. She says, I have met the Messiah. He has the power to see into the depths of the human heart. When you consider how little spiritual truth this woman knew, her zeal puts us to shame. But God used her simple testimony, and many people came to the well to meet Jesus. 
she was the least likely person to win almost an entire village. And the people said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. As we leave Jacob's well on our tour, we have wells too. Each one of us has a well. We have many life experiences from which we can draw of God's faithfulness and to refresh others with Jesus' living water. We women can draw from the deep well of our Savior's love and his joy and his hope to encourage others, to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to usher their souls to the greatness of God. When I was a composition teacher and I'd have a class of 30 to 35 students, sometimes in that class I would have what they call non-traditional students. Isn't that a great title? Non-traditional students means that students who've been taking a vacation from school for a while. And they may be 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, and here they are in a composition class at college. And they look around and they see all these young kids and they go, oh, I don't have any stories to write about. These young ones here, they have a lot to write about. And I say to those students, wait a minute. Your wells are deep. Your wells are deeper than the young ones that you see sitting around you because you can draw from those wells your life experiences and you can put those on page and you can share it with others. You have many things to share. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, just think of the abundance, the living water that from which we can draw as we share God, Christ's love and our stories with others. So no conversation is an accident or without a divine purpose. That's a lesson of the two conversations we saw. And you have everything by the power of the Holy Spirit for warm, loving conversations with others, whether it's in your home, whether it's outside of your home, whether it's at your workplace or in your school or in the local church. In our next lesson, we're going to have a conversation of parables. And we're going to travel to the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding towns of Jesus' day, Bethsaida, and we're going to go to Capernaum. And I'm going to show you the Jesus boat, which was discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore, the Sea of Galilee. We're going to meet the disciples, and we're going to show you where they lived and what brought them to Messiah Jesus. And we're going to listen to some of Jesus' parables in the locations in which he spoke them. So I hope you come back. Uh, don't put away your backpack or your hiking boots. Bring them with you when you come next time. And when we meet again on October 26th, we're going to continue the tour and the lessons of Messiah Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we had tonight to listen in on these conversations. And thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit recorded these conversations in your word. I thank you so much, Father, that... Uh, we can learn from the geography of where these conversations took place as well. Nothing is by accident in your divine plan. Thank you, Father, for each woman who attended here tonight. Uh, you know their stories, Father. And I know, Father, you know how to meet their needs. So we are blessed, Father, to be women of faith and have the word of God to direct our path and light our path. 
And we trust, Father, that we will stand on the word of God as we walk by faith. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.